Hi everybody, today is August 26th. Welcome to Prosody Monstrosity, a Cracked Liberty production. Today's podcast is on God is Dead. This is going to be a bit of a difficult podcast and I hope you will hear the entirety of it. And I'm going to very, very scratch the surface on the only thing that we can really ever do about anything. <laughs> uh, I think it's pretty important to understand that as a human, the only experience we know is of being a human and the reality of our experience of the, of the terra firma we're walking on and the rivers and ocean and trees we really only see the surface. Even if we're peering through a microscope and looking at the, uh, you know, we're, if we're being myopic and zooming in on a microscope and looking at things in great detail up close, we're still only seeing the surface. And so, uh, oh, squeaky voice. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche is one of these very, very complex characters. Have you ever tried to read any of his books? My gosh. Uh, first of all, I don't read German. And so if you're reading one of his books and you're like me, you're reading a translation and there's uh, something called Lost in Translation. So uh, it's another example of barely scratching the surface, even if you're going to look deeply and up close. So Friedrich Nietzsche is one of those uh, pedestalized, almost superheroes. And it's always interesting to me looking at who, who is placed on the pedestal and, and what in sort of the whisper down the lane uh, game of the Scratch the Surface, how we wind up getting uh, a very small soundbite similar to what I'm talking about in the book I'm writing called The Other N-Word, the book on narcissism, uh, how the pre-codified theatrical, mythological, archetypical story of Narcissus and Echo and Zeus and Hera how it got whispered down the lane in uh, whispered down the lane or or like a game of phone uh you know where you whisper something in someone's ear and then they whisper it in someone's ear how it got reduced the way refined sugar or refined cocaine gets reduced from the sugarcane plant into a grain of sugarcane sand uh, a grain of sugar you know, a, a granule is the word I'm looking for. Uh, how we reduced something so complex. I mean, just think about all of the different potential varieties of sugarcane that exist, similar to cannabis. How many millions of strains, infinite varieties of cannabis are there? Are there? But we have a marijuana, you know, a, a marijuana prohibition or all these laws that, you know, the authorities get to tell us whether marijuana is legal or not legal or medical. So it's, it's, 
it seems to be a very frustrating um there's all these layers of frustration that ultimately are about uh ignorance but combining ignorance with um this arrogance as if we know the truth or if we as if we know the reality when the reality seems like a lot of people are doing whatever they can do to deny and escape and hide and mask from the reality. So we're going to just scratch the surface of scratching the surface of scratching the surface of scratching the surface of God is dead. And what did Frederick Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche mean by God is dead? And it's probably one of the most contorted, twisted, misunderstood. Uh, people have made all sorts of assumptions about what Nietzsche was trying to say. Uh, and he said it in a few different ways in a few different books with, uh, with a fiction approach and with a more diary journalistic approach and also a sociological, predictive, uh, prophetic approach the way a sociologist predicts the future. Uh, so before getting into uh, what Nietzsche meant by God is dead, uh, to place... Friedrich Nietzsche into context, you have to also understand that he was heavily influenced by Christianity and his father was a Lutheran, uh, a Lutheran minister. So he grew up very much, uh, in a, uh, Lutheran Christian, Lutheran Christian home, um, within a a very, very Christian society within a Christian Europe. Um, he, just a, a brief, uh, to place him in an era, um, most of his works that he was publishing and writing, uh, most of those were coming out in the late 1800s, like 1888. So, um, you can you can picture where the United States was in the late 1800s. We're talking about uh, the beginning atrocities of massive fledgling industrialization. Uh, a lot of ecocide happening. A lot of air pollution. Um, uh, all sorts of revol revolutions and uprisings. The the early, uh, the early hints of of communistic type revolutions, socialism, um, and so some of the context is important to understand with with how Friedrich Nietzsche was looking at uh, democracies um, and and revolutions and socialism and and things like that. Uh, so late 1800s, he, so he's heavily influenced by Christianity 
and he takes a deep dive into a lot of the Greek, uh, Greek mythology, Greek philosophers, and what what is philosophy? Uh, one of my favorite questions to ask someone with a PhD, because you can't get a PhD without having that word philosophy in there. Sometimes it's really funny to ask someone with a PhD, what is philosophy? Because I've, I've had doctors, <laughs> PhD doctors, not able to answer that, which is really funny. Uh, so first, let's just talk about philosophy. Philosophy means love of wisdom. So love of wisdom and that that combination just right there seems to be a uh kind of a winning combination love of wisdom i think love of wisdom is is the uh masculine feminine yin yang uh harmony between uh it's the harmony and and union between masculine and feminine love and wisdom and so a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom and my take on a philosopher is it's the passion uh of love it's it's a feeling that drives a person to wisdom and so uh if if you're a man listening if if you've ever had an incredibly loving woman in your life uh that is something that uh seems to it's like wind in a sail the loving woman is is like wind in the sail that propels you forward on a quest for wisdom uh and and that also is a harmony of what happens when you love God. And so this is going to be a little bit of a complex topic of talking about God is dead through that, that very misunderstood sentence of Karl Nietzsche, I mean, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, what, is the, what is he saying, God is dead? Well, let's dive into some things here. I... I took some notes, pardon me, while I get to the beginning of them. One thing that Friedrich Nietzsche wanted to do was, uh, let's, let's place him also contextually. There's some other things that need to be said about him. Uh, to cut to the chase, I'm going to kind of chapter forward, uh, it seems most likely that he was suffering from a tumor behind one of his eyes uh, since he was a child that was growing and growing and getting worse and worse that ultimately killed him and that most likely it was a genetic uh, thing that also killed his own father. And um, he had these excruciating migraines and... They would just lay him out. Uh, he described the migraine to a friend of his once that it was like seeing 
this whole um, sort of kaleidoscope of flowers, uh, bright, glimmering flowers. And when he would get these migraines, he just thought he was going crazy. Uh, they would in- incapacitate him to such a severe degree that uh, he he would experience them. I don't know about you, but I, I used to get eye migraines pretty chronically when I was living in southern New Mexico. And I, I think it had to do with the brightness of the sky, the altitude of the mountains, the aridness. It's like there was a certain combination where my eye migraines were exacerbated because of the altitude and aridness and sky and, and temperature. And so obviously, obviously the setting where we live has a, has a massive impact on how we feel in our health and body and things like that. Uh, so Frederick Nietzsche during, uh, an era where he was quite prolific, uh, in his writings, he had left a, uh, position teaching at a university. He was a young man teaching at a university and he was having these eye migraines and he, um, we're going to dive into a Greek, uh, a Greek, uh, person from the the Greek and Rome era, like, like that whole sort of, uh, remind me, we're going to talk about, uh, Diogenes in a second, this, this real life character named Diogenes. Before getting into Diogenes, uh, picture Nietzsche teaching at universities and picture universities today, uh, wokeism and virtue signaling and all these things, you know, leftism and, and, and seeing a large discrepancy in uh, people, you know, just sort of dishonest, um, morally corrupt, virtuously bankrupt. Just, just picture yourself teaching in your in a university, and things not being really lined up or harmonious. It 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 might seem like a great fun job to have, but when you realize how most people are and how most people are living in society, a lot of people are kind of just living a lie or they are sleepwalking uh, or their they're, they're, things aren't quite lining up in their um, ethics and morality and, and passion. Um, add getting eye migraines to the mix and he leaves university and he tries to find the perfect climate zone for his temperament, which causes him to go to this little town in the mountains in Switzerland where he rents a little room and he gets up super early, washes himself in the, in the little, you know, water pail that's sitting in his little, little guest house that he's renting and then he goes on a vigorous walk early in the morning and he comes back and he writes all day and he maybe goes on a few walks in the mountains and he's he's quite um taken to the mountains in a in a very legitimate real factual way he's above the other people he's higher than society he's he's up in the alps and he's 
he's higher than the rest of the people living in society. So in a, in a very real way, he's, he's uh, closer to the gods up there high in the mountains. And I do have to say last night, I, I myself was high up in the mountains and a massive, massive uh, hailstorm, an electrical storm. There was just lightning that looked like, it looked like mycelium mushroom tentacles all over the sky. The whole sky was, was this strobe light effect. My whole body felt as if it was getting static electric electricity charged where I thought I was going to be struck by lightning. And I currently live in a little a bus that has solar panels on the roof. The bus is on rubber tires, so it's not grounded. I'm parked in these, it's just high altitude, uh, just below, uh, where the tree line ends. So I'm in the last bit of trees before it's just, you know, granite rocks above me. And, uh, the, the clouds and the lightning and the hail were so scary <laughs> that it's, it, it's terrifying and it feels godly. I, I, I fled the scene because I felt like me or my bus or both of us were going to get struck by lightning. And I drove, uh, a couple thousand feet down altitude. And when I got out of that cloud system right below it, I looked up and it just looked like a massive rolling frothing ocean. Uh, it looked like when you get caught underneath waves, when you're boogie boarding or surfing, when you're a kid in the ocean and you get caught and you're being pummeled and rolled and you can't breathe and you can't hear and you're underneath the waves, that's what the sky looked like. And, and so, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche's up there living in the in the in the more godly closer to God above the people uh and and as he's on these hikes you know his interactions with people are less and uh one of the books he wrote is called Thus Spoke uh Therasutra Therasutra and he um he that book, there's a there's a moment where uh, Zarathustra meets a saint, and in the dialogue between between uh, this this character named Zarathustra who meets the saint, there's sort of this unfolding of this fictional conversation about God being dead. That's one of the examples of of when Nietzsche is writing about God being dead, and I'm just trying to paint some of the bigger picture. So you've got this young man who's, who's, he's, he's like a Renaissance man. He, he, he's, he's a musician and a writer and, and he's just a, he's one of these people who's just going to excel no matter what he, what he does. But he also has this tumor that he's not aware of. He just has these horrible eye migraines that he just has to deal with. And, um, so some of the context is important for, for the God is dead part. Um, okay, so, Diogenes. Diogenes, uh, they call Diogenes the cynic. Diogenes the cynic. The, the term, our word for dog, uh, and our word for cynic, both are rooted back into this character named Diogenes. And Diogenes was a real dude, 
born somewhere, I think, on the Black Sea, uh, you know, over near Greece, modern-day Greece. And Diogenes was, according to some, like a crazy man. Uh, according to others, he he was a sage, you know. Uh, he Diogenes very much chose to live on the fringes of society uh, with dogs. He lived with basically dogs, uh, and he owned nothing. Um, there's a story of Diogenes holding a candle or a lamp where he would, he would walk around public areas and hold a candle or a lamp up to strangers' faces because he was trying to find, uh, he was trying to find people, uh, who were honest and he felt that it was almost an impossibility to find people who were honest. And I'm talking about Diogenes here because it's important to understand because because Nietzsche was very much inspired by uh, Diogenes. And um, so you've got this quote-unquote madman named Diogenes. And um, he, let's see here, I need to open up a note here. Uh, I'm going to just read a little bit about Diogenes to give you a little bit of a story here. Um, and I'm just reading a little history here. Uh, Diogenes of Sinope. Uh, he was a Greek cynic philosopher, best known for holding a lantern or candle to the faces of citizens of Athens, claiming he was searching for an honest man. He rejected the concept of manners, as a lie and advocated complete truthfulness at all times and under any circumstance. He was most likely a student of the philosopher uh, Antisthenes. And I'm going to skip over that part. Uh, he made a home for himself in Athens in the Agora, living in a rain barrel, surviving off gifts from admirers, foraging and begging. I feel like that sounds like me right now. I'm surviving off the Patreon gifts of others. <clears throat> Diogenes, Diogenes uh, he's famous for searching for an honest man. Uh, it was his way of exposing the hypocrisy and sham of polite societal conventions by holding a literal light up to people's faces in broad daylight, he forced them to recognize their participation in practices that prevented them from living truthfully. He inspired others to follow his example, most notably uh, Crates of Thebes. Uh, let's see here. Diogenes is still highly regarded in the present day for his commitment to truth and living according to his beliefs. Diogenes' beliefs. He came to Athens where he met uh, blah, blah, blah. Let's see here. I'm going to skip over that part. He was so ardent in his beliefs that he lived them very publicly in the marketplace of Athens. Uh, he took up residence in a large wine cask. Some sources claim it was an abandoned bathtub, owning nothing, and seems to have lived off of the charity of others. He owned a cup 
which served also as a bowl for food, but threw it away when he saw a boy drinking water from his hands and realized one did not even need a cup to sustain oneself. He was known for brutal honesty in conversation, paid no attention to any kind of etiquette regarding social class, and seems to have had no problem urinating or even masturbating in public. Uh, when criticized, pointed out that such activities were normal and that everyone engaged in them but hid in private what he did openly. According to Diogenes, society was an artificial contrivance set up by human beings which did not accord well with truth or virtue and could not in any way make someone a good and decent human being. And so follows the famous story of Diogenes holding the light up to the faces of passers-by in the marketplace looking for an honest man or a true human being. This is key, the true human being. Everyone, he claimed, was trapped in this make-believe world, which they insisted was reality. And because of this, people were living in a kind of dream state. He was not the first philosopher to make this claim. Heraclitus, there's others. Socrates, yada, yada. Uh, let's see here. All right, that's pretty much what I'm going to say about Diogenes. So it's important to understand that truth, that Nietzsche is heavily inspired by Diogenes. And you have to sort of see that Nietzsche, growing up under the roof of a pastor, um, he was exposed to Christianity a lot, living in a Christian society. And then eventually he started reading some of the ancient Greek philosophers. And this, this synergy, this combination happens where I just want to, I want to chapter forward and cut to the chase a little bit is that, uh, Nietzsche was not a universalist. He didn't ever believe in some overarching one size fits all, uh, thing. So when he says God is dead, it's a very nuanced, complex thing he's saying, because there's, uh, a positive in a, a type of, uh, almost wishful thinking he had of the potential of humans to take very personal uh, disciplined responsibility for themselves. But also he saw the dark side of a, it was like a sociological prediction of a future that was going to happen where God is dead. And I think this is a very important um, thing to be scratching the surface on because you know, for the last two and a half years, we've been in this uh, trust the science hubris, this trust the science er uh, trust the science arrogance from all sorts of people not living in truth. So it's 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 this whole trust the science doublespeak coming from uh, criminal pharmaceutical drug cartels, the most criminal organizations ever in, in, in the uh, history of criminality, 
telling us to trust the science. So uh, I oftentimes think of Frederick Nietzsche and the whole thing about saying God is dead and his prediction of this future where God God is dead in the future, which is now. And in, and evidence of this, just to talk about some current events that happened about two, two and a half years ago, uh, religious exemption, uh, states, cities, jobs, uh, regions throughout the world and the United States uh, became supremacist became there became a vax supremacist movement where one uh, ideology was trying to dominate uh, which is what supremacies try to do uh, have dominion over others and a uh, the the uh, what do you call it it was not the supreme court but how each state has their their sort of version of of a of a body of law authorities. I can't remember what you call that. Uh, cutting to the chase, the state of Connecticut uh, completely destroyed religious exemption. Uh, so in Connecticut, you're no longer allowed to uh, even ask to have a religious exemption from these supremacist, uh, double speak quote, health mandate. So that's just an example of God is dead. A, a, a government board in Connecticut says no longer can you do religious exemptions, which is just seemingly hypocritical and ironic and against the law that a government body can, uh, violate and break the constitution just so flagrantly like that so you know that's just one example of here we are god is dead in places like connecticut you can't file religious exemption <clears throat> and <clears throat> let's see here i'm just looking at a couple notes here and trying to get get back into a something to, to just scratch the surface instead of make things really confusing. So God is Dead was Nietzsche making a sociological reality-based prediction of our future, which is here now. And one of the things he was also doing in his writings was... Um, just trying to get people to accept the truth of the reality they were living in then and the truth of what was coming down the road with what what he was seeing happening one of the one of the concerns that Nietzsche had because he he talks about god is dead both positively and negatively dark and light sunward side and shadeward side he he's not a universalist so he's not saying he's not he's not stating it as some kind of atheistic celebration and he's not saying it as a, a positive or a negative he's saying it as both and the the thing that's that most people in today's time and age it doesn't seem that people have a capacity to see 
the big picture or to hold two things at once. It seems that most ignoramuses only are aware of one thing at a time, that they can't they can't hold two things at once or see uh, nuance and complexity. It's like one, zero, one, zero. Is it this or this? You know, um, is marijuana good or bad? It was like, well, there's a thousand million different marijuana plants. Saying God is dead is an incredibly humongous, complex topic. And so when people just see it as some sort of atheistic celebration, they are being an idiot because it's nuanced. One of his, his concerns uh, about this thing that was happening, it was, he, he, he tries to show that through Christianity itself, there is a almost an inevitability of a future people no longer believing in this abstract uh, universal truth. And he was seeing it happening in his time and he was, he was, it's only going to get worse in the future. And his concern was that he compared it as something similar as to uncoupling the earth from the sun. That's pretty scary. <laughs> and so he asks this question of if, if we're going to be uncoupling the earth from the sun, will we have to become gods ourselves? And, and part of the optimistic part of that question is that, you know, here in 2022, for the last five or 10 years, one of the terms that's really nauseated me and bothered me is this term self-help. And I'm going to do a whole podcast on self-help because self-help is kind of like a Orwellian doublespeak term. And it's interesting that it was so heavily marketed to us for the last five or 10 years. And if you're one of the... Uh, quote-unquote therapists out there who uses the word self-help, ugh, maybe find a different way to say it because it's very Orwellian, it's very doublespeak, and it's, it's similar to the word mental health, which the WHO, the World Health Organization, coined in 1948, which kicked off a uh, grandiose pork-barreling scheme to just basically steal our money and put it into the hands of psycho the rapists, psychotherapists, you know, government run experimentation on people, very, very Soviet type Pavlovian experimentations of governments experimenting on people like MK Ultra and that kind of stuff. Uh, mental health was a marketed and advertised term that we're still dealing with. And so is self help. So one of the one of the optimistic uncouplings of the earth of the like very terrifying uncoupling earth from the sun with this God is dead thing was that we as individuals, we will now be tasked with finding hope within ourselves and finding forgiveness internally within our own willpower. Uh, so th there seems to be a, a, a call for ruthless discipline and maturity and, and, and going inside ourself and not being able to be codependent or, or talk in abstractions, to be very real about ourself, which I think is a, a, a good thing. But Nietzsche 
had a very, very clear understanding similar to Diogenes that everybody in society except for the very rare sage or hermit or, uh, you know, that it was just very, very rare to find a truthful or honest person. And um, he he saw it as very rare. The other thing he saw as very rare was what he called the free spirit. And the free spirit, the free spirit, you know, is, is untethered by... Uh, conditioning and uh, by authority uh, the free spirit is is what a philosopher is that the only way you can really have a love or a pursuit for wisdom is to be a free spirit and as a free spirit uh, Nietzsche was he was a believer in in being on the move and adventuring and exploring and 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 uh so the the free spirit the free spirit part is is also similar to the uncoupling of the earth from the sun that that it takes a huge amount of responsibility to be a free spirit to not be dependent on anything or anybody um let's see here what he was seeing in the late 1800s was was a collapse already happening uh, a collapse in morality uh ethics that that things were collapsing and you you'd have a hard time not seeing that if you're just witnessing the the advent of all of the ecocide the massive geological pollution and destruction that the very beginning of the industrial revolution was wreaking on air quality and rivers and people's spirits, you know, just like brutal, brutal conditions. You know, you think of late 1800s in the United States and child laborers like losing arms and eyes and working in coal mines and that kind of stuff. So, um, one of the one of the predictions that this is a really difficult one to try to talk about quickly and i'm just going to try to just plant a little seed here he shows that through through a belief in an abstract in an abstract god that the longevity of that codependence leads to an inability to believe in anything. That, that when you look at the, the bright side of something in the shadeward side, the sunward and shadeward side, that the, the negative side of a belief in something abstract, that it leads to this inability to believe in anything and that from there we as a society as people in the society will enter into a world that is subjective and relative and when I talk about subjective and relative 
you know, that's, that's what we're seeing with like 75 different genders and all these different pronouns where we've, we've entered this fracturing into, uh, things no longer being real, like everything being rooted in fantasy and, oh, I identify as a wolf dog she fail, uh, and I, I identify as a Zixer, uh, you know, fluid, polyamorous, whatever, like, like the whole subjective and relative, you know, people, people are really caught up in all sorts of things with say, you know, um, you know, just things like that oil is infinite or that ever, ever accelerating profits for oil companies, you know, like that there's always accessible oil, always clean water, you know, people, people can just pose any belief, anything, because everything's just subjective and relative now, where actual truth and actual reality seem to be something that people are hiding from and masking themselves from and running away from. And this is the part that's really difficult to talk about with Fred, with Friedrich Nietzsche about God is dead because um, it's, it's, it's very complex. The, the, thus spoke Derasustra, I could never say that name, um, Derasustra, whatever his name is. He, uh, in that story, he meets a, a sage, a, a wise like monk, uh, a wise religious person living in the mountains. And, and that story seems to be showing that there's a very rare type of religious person who actually has discipline and passion and is living truthfully, that that's very rare. Uh, from my, my personal, uh, I just want to say, I believe in God. I also don't, like talking about it so much or wearing it on my sleeve uh, because to me it's a very um, intimate, private, deep relationship that's nameless. It's, it, it can't be put into words because it's, it's not material. Like God, God is spiritual, it's not material. And the surface we're seeing is the material. You know, we're seeing the material expression and what's behind it. It's like, I imagine there's a sun, you know, the way I might explain it is that there's an eternal sun behind the sun. I see the physical sun burning. I feel its heat, but there's, there's something behind it, you know, or, or within the water in trees, it's where I'm seeing the material but I can't actually talk about the thing underneath that surface, the spirit. Uh, okay, so let's see here. Um, he's he's all about the free spirited person. So when he he when he runs into thus spoke Verasutra, 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 Verasutra. I can never say that. Thus spoke Verasustra. It's kind of a tongue twister. Thus spoke Verasustra. Say that ten times. Thus spoke Verasustra. Thus spoke Verasustra. Uh, that story 
is really two free spirits running into each other on a path. And to sum up their conversation, it has to do with true belief. And this is really key right here, you guys. True belief. True belief is not proved by argument. It's not, uh, sorry, it's not proved by argument. It's something you feel. It's something that is beyond doubt for you. So true belief is not proved by argument. It's something you feel. It's something that is beyond doubt for you. When you truly believe, you don't subject to questioning. That true belief is going to motivate your actions in spite of all the intellectual arguments about it. If we are unable to truly believe in anything, though, to ground our moral values in any kind of transcendence, he warns us and he worries that nihilism will follow. And this, this nihilism gets into a, another deeper layer of a conversation about pity pity and you have to kind of place yourself in context the era of european he's in the the version of christianity he's experienced uh he talks about pity and and through his lens in this historical time and this is when when he's talking about christianity i always think of the vax supremacy so i apply a lot of the wisdom and philosophy he's talking about about christianity to the new religion now because the new religion is trust the science so almost everything he's saying about pity you can talk about it in the same way as the trust the science people because that's the religion we're in now Uh, feeling the pain of someone doesn't alleviate the pain it only spreads the pain and so he he talks about christianity Uh, And this is where I compare it to the Vax supremacy. Um, I'm going to say that line again. Feeling the pain of someone else doesn't alleviate their pain. It only spreads the pain to the next person. And he's saying that this is pretty much the like cornerstone of what Christianity was in his time. Pity is the expression of the pursuit of power. Pity is the expression of the pursuit of power. That line... You know, when you think of how all the politicians were, you know, stay home so you don't get grandma sick, get vaccinated so you don't get grandma sick. We need to order a million ventilators. The whole thing was really from pity. And one thing that Nietzsche cautioned of, he, he saw Christianity crumbling, but that the, the things that were, it's like... A lot of the European Christianity was built upon all of this this thing, which was really built around pity. And when he saw Christianity crumbling in Europe, and he saw these huge movements like socialism and communism and other revolutions happening, what he saw was that democracies democracies were the new Christianity, but the they were the dark side of it. That democracies were the 
they were propelled and fueled and motivated and run by this deeper uh, thing about pity. Pity is the expression of the pursuit of power. Uh, he talks about how the sick and decrepit, a sick and decrepit person, they have the power to hurt. So someone who's sick and decrepit, they don't really have any power over anything or over others, but they have the power to hurt. That's kind of a deep one that makes me pause and think a sick and decrepit person has the power to hurt. Which makes me think of that line, hurt people, hurt people. Pity. He says that pity is the highest virtue of Christianity. And it's about spreading pain. Spreading feeling sorry for others. And feeling sorry for oneself. There's an instinctive hatred of reality as the only driving force at the root of the Christian religion. And remember, this is, this is to be seen in two hands because I'm not talking about the very rare, very rare, pious, truthful, honest Christian. I'm talking about an industry. The instinctive hatred of reality as the only driving force at the root of the Christian religion. Now, replace that. The instinctive hatred of reality as the only driving force at the root of the vax supremacy. Because that's our religion today. The vax supremacy hates reality. And this is where things are going to get interesting. That aversion to reality... It comes to the type of soul that recoils at everything, especially suffering and pain. With a total aversion to suffering. Denying, trying to deny the reality of the world. In past times, Christianity gladdened the heart. But in modern times, it can only disturb the heart. Now, I'd like to place what our new religion is today in there, the Vax supremacy, because, you know, vaccines were invented in India. It's a history not a lot of people know about, but vaccines were invented in India. And then that technology was stolen, tweaked, morphed. Now we're in Operation Warp Speed into the Vax supremacy. And we could say that in the past, a vaccine gladdened the heart. It was actual medicine. But in modern times, it can only disturb the heart myocarditis, parachyditis, but in modern times, it can only disturb the heart. Here's a really great quote. It can only survive by offering salvation of its own disturbances. So back in the day, Nietzsche's looking at this industrialized version of Christianity that's also in mid-collapse throughout Europe in the brand new age of trust the science. And he's saying that it can only survive by offering salvation of its own disturbances. That's such a deep quote. That's in, in vaccine science, they call that pathogenic priming, that the vaccines actually prime you for more disease where you need more medicine and more disease. So that quote, it can only survive by offering salvation of its own disturbances. 
And to reiterate that, in past time, Christianity gladdened the heart, but in modern times, it can only disturb the heart. It can only survive by offering salvation of its own disturbances. You could just really easily say the exact same thing about the vac supremacy. In past time, vaccines gladdened the heart, but in modern times, they can only disturb the heart. And the vaccines can only survive by offering salvation of their own disturbances. It's like they disturb you by giving this poison to you. And then they tell you you need more poison as the salvation. He was saying, and I want you to hear this, religion as the new religion, the vax supremacy. He was saying religion that spreads. He was saying that religion was a, or sorry, he said religion spreads and uplifts weakness. Religion spreads and uplifts weakness. That's a really complex thing that I think uh, could be very misinterpreted. But hear it just like vaccines today. You know, the vax supremacy only spreads and uplifts weakness. Making everyone take these poisons is only making everybody, it's only uplifting weakness. The spirit of pity taking control, the spirit of pity takes control. It's, it's running out of control. The spirit of pity. Think about pity when you think about all these movements. BLM. BLM is running on uh, pity. It's, it's, it, underneath it, it's a foundation of pity. Socialism. Underneath, that's the foundation of pity. Revolutions, communism, they all run on pity. And that, that was uh, Nietzsche's warning, was that Christianity was going to collapse. And in that free fall, the part about pity was only going to continue taking control and get more out of control. So now we're seeing BLM and socialism and communism, all these things that are rooted in pity. And he said that democracy was the next phase of Christianity and democracy was going to take that baton of pity and spread and uplift weakness. All right, I'm going to drink a little bit of water and we're going to wrap this up. We we're almost at the end of this podcast and I'm so thirsty. So pardon me while I walk over and find a water bottle out of the front of my bus. And, uh, these podcasts are unedited, rough, raw, real. I hope you enjoy them. We're going to tie this one up, tie a bow around it. And remember, this is just scratching the surface. So I'll probably do some more on Nietzsche, but um, we're scratching the surface of scratching the surface. Uh, here's, a, here's kind of where things get really interesting. Thus spoke Verasustra. Thus spoke Verasustra. There's a character called the ugliest man. The ugliest man. And the ugliest, the ugliest man is God's killer. So this ugliest man is like the most horrendously ugliest evilest person ever and it's the one who kills god in this story and the reason the ugliest man the ugliest man is explaining like why he killed god and he he basically says that man cannot bear it that that god had to die 
because God saw with eyes that saw everything and that man cannot bear it that such a witness should live. And the ugliest man did this so that he could mask and hide because deep down, deep down, the ugliest man needs to escape from the ever-judging eyes of the divine. That is pretty... Uh, I, I'm just going to say it. When I heard the ugliest man and his justification for killing God, the ugliest man says he had to die. Because man cannot bear it. He saw with eyes that saw everything. Man cannot bear it that such a witness should live. And so the ugliest man wanted to mask and hide because deep down he wanted to escape from the ever-judging eyes of the divine. Anthony Fauci, I'm sorry to say it, but Anthony Fauci just is just front and center in my mind's eye when I read and heard that. This, this ugly man who wants to mask and hide and wanted, he wanted to mask and hide everybody. Morality is the herd instinct within the individual. So Nietzsche, Nietzsche believed that, that there was this innate thing called morality that um, you hear your community when you transgress against it. That, that you know, the community is the, is, there's an inherent morality in you as a person. And when you transgress against your community, you hear it. That's what your conscience is. And I don't know, you guys, just the, that, that part about the ugliest man killing God. And this last two and a half years, I, I recently I've seen Anthony Fauci go on, um, and be interviewed where he will not acknowledge any regret, guilt, appropriate shame, anything for uh, killing God. And this whole, this whole Vax supremacist movement really was, it really was part of the ugliest man killing God. Because you weren't allowed to uh, have faith in God. You had to trust the science. The ugliest man had to kill God because that omniscient pity crawls into our dirtiest nooks. We are pitied by the Almighty and we want to be free from the most judging eye. This ugliest man is not a praiseworthy character. The ugliest man wanted to rip out all the constraints, all the values all the discipline. The ugliest man didn't want morals and ethics. He would rather be able to just live according to whims and hungers and thirsts. The ugliest man wants to be free of having a conscience. 
and let the passions run wild without having to feel judgment. That's psychopathic. He wants the urge to be free of judgments. This is not a wholesome person. The, what Nietzsche was really warning, it's almost like a sociological warning that there's going to be a future where God is dead. You know, here we are, trust the science, Anthony Fauci. And, and he basically gives a, a strong uh, aim to his readers to find the true world and that his warning was that when God is dead that returning to absolute truth will become impossible it's interesting in the last two and a half years there was a lot of like messaging of don't question the science don't ask questions and in this God is dead the, the duality, the shadeward side and lightward side, he criticizes Christianity in Europe at the time because Christianity was all about instilling you shall not think in its people. But he, he was saying that that whole Christian umbrella was collapsing and that democracy was going to be born out of it and that the you shall not think would only become stronger. And that it would be rooted in pity. Something pitiful. And this whole, this whole fear-mongering around pathogens and viruses and sickness and fear of others. It's all rooted in pity. It's pitiful. Pathetic. So... Modern scholars call Friedrich Nietzsche an atheist. And they're right. I think they're correct in that. Uh, But I also, when you look at the broadness of more of his works... The very last thing Nietzsche did with some of his money, he basically, short story, won a lawsuit. One of his books, uh, the publisher was not going to print it because it was, it was, you know, threatening to Christian ways, Christian values. Uh, he ultimately sued the publisher, won the lawsuit, and what he did with the money was he bought, he bought a headstone for his father's grave. And... Um, I think that modern scholars also do Nietzsche a huge injustice by calling him an atheist. He had no, um, he, he, he wasn't a universalist and he wasn't, I don't think he was someone you could put into a box. I think you, I think that to call someone an atheist mean, means they don't believe in God. And I think what he was criticizing was a type of industrialism of, uh, something rooted in something so pitiful 
that it's hard to pull the lens back and even see the surface of that. Uh, and and his writings are very hard to read. Um, they're not easy to read. So I think most people in modern times aren't seeing things on a big picture or nuanced. And I, I think that... Um, I hope this gives a little bit of a... Uh, very scratch the surface into some of the complexity of um, of his writings and I hope you can make a leap when he talks about religion and and see what he's talking about with religion as what democracy is and what the vax supremacy is uh, and to understand what pity pitiful and patheticness is uh, hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to reach out to me, contact me at three things at protonmail.com. Spell three things T R T H R E E T H I N G S. Three things at protonmail.com. And join the Patreon. It's $30 a month. Go to www.patreon.com slash cracked liberty. Share this with your friends. And uh, till next time, bye.